Now we do have uh, an update from Calvin and Nicole. Uh, Calvin and Nicole, as you know, have been in Kenya since January. Uh, in fact, I think you just saw them a little while ago, Alicia, back there. Um, um, so we're going to play that now. Hello, Junction Church. Uh, the Opios coming to you from Kenya, uh, Mombasa. And I would love to say a big, big, big thank you to you guys for your support. Uh, we found a house. We got into Mombasa and we really did find a good house in a very good location near Congo where, where, uh, where we are working. And um, the house just didn't come in uh, just like that. It had its own issues and uh, we've been able to settle that out with the landlord. Uh, we, <laughs> we were actually going to move from this house though we loved it. Mm. But uh, last minute the landlord came in and he showed us... Uh, that he really cares and he would love to have us here. So we, we renovated, uh, repaired uh, the glitches that we had and uh, we're excited about this house. One of the things we're excited about this house is just the size and the homey feel that it brings when we host people. We were looking for that kind of a house, a house that would host um, friends, a house that will host ministry meetings, a house that will host my big family <laughs> from Kenya, you know, when, uh, when they visit. So we're excited that uh, mm -hmm. we found this house. We also managed to find a good school for Masi. Uh, it's an international school, so uh, we're excited about that, that uh, it will help her if, to transition <laughs> from here to Canada if, if need be. Uh, so we're excited about that. We also found a church, a church that um, we feel that uh, we are called in, in there to not only just be uh, members, but also uh, be part of, uh, of, of ministries that are, that are in that place. So, um, so we, we thank God for that. It is, it, these are all prayer answers, mm. prayers answered, and so we, um, we bless the Lord for that. Yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't been easy. It's actually been a really rough three months, if we're going to be honest. A lot of transition and um, a lot of just, we came in with our own expectations of what was going to happen and what was going to look like. And we were so excited to start doing ministry. And uh, we just then realized we need to slow down, focus on our family, make sure we're set up properly, make sure our house is fine. Um, and so I think we're finally uh, on the upswing of that finally after three months um, as for ministry wise we've got a lot of stuff going on a lot of stuff in the works um, but one thing that really we realized once we got here is that um, the Muslim population has grown hugely um, where we used to be here about half our youth were Christians and half were Muslims and at this point I would say about 90% of them are Muslims if you were to sleep at our house which I hope all of you one day come to visit you will be woken up at 4.30 a.m. and you will listen to, oh my gosh, like I swear 20 mosques until 6 a.m. And then by that time my kids will be awake and you will be awake too. And so we literally, we live surrounded by these people. And so everything that we do, all the programs we run, the soccer, prenatal, women, Bible, marriage couples, Bible study, um, it's all now sort of with this intent to reach out to Muslims and really how you do that um, is through relationship building. 
and that can be slow and that can be long and hard and it can be vulnerable and awkward and so um, we're at that stage right now of just sort of reaching out and building relationships even we were denied one of our good friends or uh, a kid we used to have in our program we invited him for a Bible study him and his wife and they flat out just said no and because they're Muslims so um, yeah, so keep us in prayers because that's a really big aspect of what we're going through right now and um, trying to, to manage, to, to just figure out where God is leading us and what He is doing in this place. So, um, yeah. Uh, if you want to pray for us, which we hope you'll pray for us, um, a few things. First of all, we do ask that you pray for these, these relationships to be built. Um, that we would step out of our comfort zone to do it. It's, it can be really awkward, especially as a white girl. You, you, you do much better than I do, but as a white girl, um, it can be a little, can be a little harder. Um, and it just takes a lot of humility to, to actually step out and make these relationships. And um, that they're so necessary. Um, a few other things that we appreciate prayers for are a vehicle. We're looking for a car. Um, it's really hard to move around this city with just two little kids. And especially right now, Mombasa is actually flooding, unfortunately. Um, yesterday, I, I literally pulled Mercy out of her bus window yesterday because, like, there was no, the bus, there was no street to put her on because um, it was so flooded. Um, so a vehicle we're, we're looking to get and um, finances we are still looking for supporters uh, with our programs coming up with the soccer and prenatal we are looking for sponsors to help us um, go through those programs and so if that is you please get a hold of us we really really appreciate it um, pray for the political scenario uh, mm, in yeah. Mombasa or in Kenya at large um, we're heading to our general elections coming in in August but right now there's all been these political rallies up and about and um, yeah they they, turn, they do tend to turn out uh, to be very you know tense. rowdy yeah. tense you know and so just pray for those uh, situations uh, so that there will be peace there will mm -hmm. be love Kenya is a very tribal country and so <laughs> we pray that uh, our tribes you know will look at the interests of the country as a whole and people make very good decisions coming mm. coming uh, this August. Yeah, pray for safety and discernment. There's already been a few times that we've had to kind of avoid going places or doing things because there's been something political happening. So um, we'd love to connect with you too. We do have an email list. If you are not on this list, um, please get a hold of maybe Rhonda or Jesse and uh, they'll get you our emails. Um, we also have, we're on Facebook a lot. We have a Facebook group that we post in regularly with some more sim, um, sensitive things to pray for and, and stuff like that. So we just want to say we love you and we miss you a lot. And uh, we just thank you so much for everything you do for us. Bye. Yes, how do you pray your strength on uh, Calvin Nicole. We thank you for them. We thank you for their faith, and we thank you, God, for their love for you. Uh, God, we pray um, you would give them uh, rest in the midst of, of all this decision-making uh, that they're making. I pray you give them direction. I pray 
God, that you give them a, a, a keen sense of being able to hear your voice uh, clearly and well. And so, Father, we pray, um, we all just t- together pray blessing and your goodness over, over them. Um, and God, we pray for moms today as well. We pray uh, empowerment over moms. God, we pray for joy. We pray for the fullness of your spirit. God, we especially pray for any mom who is struggling in any way, uh, whether it be anxiety or stress or financial or health. Um, God, we pray healing. We pray wholeness. Uh, God, we pray that you'd wrap your arms uh, around them. And God, you'd give them strength and, uh, and give them uh, your blessing. Uh, Father, we uh, pray for our kids as well as they head off to the shine zone. God, you empower um, Leslie today as she teaches and shares. And uh, God, that your glory would be in the Sunday school. And God, that your spirit would speak as we uh, look at, uh, open your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so Leslie's going to be taking off, uh, taking the kids out today. All right, and we are uh, continuing through the book of Ephesians, Bible's upside down, and we're in chapter 5, verse 18. One of the interesting things about going verse by verse through a book of the Bible, we've been going through Ephesians, is sometimes you land on interesting topics that uh, you might not normally speak on, and we happen to be, our next verse is on alcohol, and so we are going to talk about Jesus and alcohol today. Uh, being followers of Jesus, what is our relationship to alcohol? How do we, do we drink, do we not drink? I mean, how do we engage with uh, alcohol is the question today. Uh, Our text is um, this. Uh, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Uh, New Living Translation puts it this way. Do not be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Or the message, do not, uh, don't drink too much wine that cheapens your life. Now, whenever we talk about anything in terms of um, uh, being a follower of Jesus, we need to start with Jesus. Uh, To be a Christian means someone who follows the life and teaching of Jesus. And that's what we do and that's what we, we strive to do. And so the first question we need to ask uh, before anything else is, what was Jesus' relationship to wine? How did, how did he uh, carry that out in his life? Because that will show us a lot about how we walk as followers of Jesus. And it's interesting, the very first picture in the Gospels that we get between Jesus and alcohol is Jesus actually making a whole bunch of alcohol. He makes a whole bunch of wine at a party. And so that's where we begin, because that's where uh, the first mention of alcohol in Jesus' ministry takes place in John chapter 2. It says, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And weddings in those days were big things. Uh, Most of the people in the community would come out. Sometimes the party would last seven days. I mean, we're just kind of evening people and into the morning maybe. Uh, but they, their parties last seven days at times. And so to last that long, you'd need a lot of food and a lot of wine. And you'd have a lot of fun for seven days. Now notice that at this wedding, it says that Jesus and his disciples are actually invited to the wedding. Now sometimes you may meet uh, Christians in which you would never want to invite to your party. 
uh, because sometimes Christians can get very religious and judgmental, and, and you know, nobody wants them at any party because they would just wreck it. <laughs> Jesus was actually invited. Uh, we see Jesus was always a, was a, was a bonus in, in a gathering. We see uh, times in uh, Matthew, we see Jesus, again, hanging out in, in crowds of non-Christians, in places where people were drinking, in, in, in party atmospheres. In John 9, it says, uh, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. And many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, they were the, the religious leaders of the day, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, he shouldn't be doing that. I thought he's supposed to love God. I mean, but Jesus did love God. And we can't love God without loving people. And Jesus understood that every person on this planet needs him. Everyone needs Jesus. Uh, I need Jesus. You need Jesus. People who drink too much need Jesus. People who don't drink need Jesus. People who drive Fords need Jesus. And people who drive Volkswagens need Jesus. I mean, everybody needs Jesus. Uh, so why would we not go where people need Jesus? Why would we not go to Mombasa where there are people who need Jesus? Why, do we, uh, why would we say no to go somewhere when there are people who need Jesus? He was invited and Jesus went. And sometimes we might actually be invited to a party. And sometimes we wonder, should we go or should we not go? Uh, Jesus did say in John 17, as uh, you, talking about the Father, sent me into the world, that he sends us into the world. That Jesus actually told us to go and make disciples, not sit in your church and call them in. I mean, we're actually to go. We are to be engaged with our community, loving the people around us. And, and if you are a loving person and uh, you're living out the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, those kinds of things that happen when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, people are going to want you at their parties. And sometimes a question that we might ask as a Christian, like, should I go or should I not go? And, uh, and the answer, and I've talked about this before, really comes down to, are you going to be a thermometer or a thermostat? Because a thermostat, it changes the temperature of the room. Where a thermometer just kind of reads and adjusts to whatever the temperature is. And if you're going to show up at a place where maybe people are doing drugs or everybody's going to get drunk, and if you are just going to end up being a thermometer and you're going to become like everybody else, it may not be best to go. But if you can show up in that atmosphere and be a thermostat and just love on people and uh, be an example and, and, and engage with people and, and live the fruit of the Spirit, then by all means go. Because we are called not to hide, but to engage the world as lights and examples in this world. We're called to be thermostats, uh, not thermometers. And this is what Jesus did. I mean, he went to this wedding knowing, because this text says, that there was people who drank too much there. I mean, there was probably stuff he didn't agree, but he still went, and, and so do we. Uh, and uh, it goes on, it says, when the wine was gone, uh, which perhaps meant maybe they didn't make enough or people drank too much. We don't know, either it wasn't enough or people drank too much, or maybe more were invited than were invited, but it ran out. And Jesus' mother said to uh, him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And that phrase, my time has not yet come, Jesus mentions a few times in the Gospels. And really what he is saying here is, is mom, I'm not sure if I'm ready to get the ball rolling towards my crucifixion. Because uh, he was being careful that he would not be crucified too early. And this is why sometimes he would say to people, don't tell anybody I healed you. But he was 
living as a human, being careful that he's not going to get the ball too rolling. And he had not done any miracles up to this point. This would actually be his first miracle. And so his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, Jesus' mom knew that Jesus was going to do the right thing. And so nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. These were religious jars for religious rituals of washing your hands before worship and, and uh, before eating. It was a ceremonial thing. And they were big, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. These were big jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the, wa uh, the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And so Jesus here, it's interesting, when uh, his mom says, they have no more wine. Jesus didn't say, good. They had enough. <laughs> no more wine. I mean, I don't agree with wine. That's enough. That's enough. He doesn't say that. He actually makes more. And he doesn't make a little bit. He makes a lot of wine. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. If you do the math, which I did, equals between seven to 900 bottles of wine. If you look at our modern day bottles. 700 to 900 bottles of wine Jesus makes. And to make this even more uh, difficult for us, he uses religious jars to do this. In terms of, uh, if you use ceremonial jars for anything else other than water, you would defile them. And de Jesus defiles these religious ceremonial jars to make wine to help this party continue to go. This is Jesus. Uh, he makes wine in these ceremonial jars. And part of the reason he does this, and this is where the gospel comes in, is in those days, uh, as in some places in today's culture, hospitality is everything. And uh, you're supposed to have the wine and have the food. You are supposed to be hospitable. And for a wedding, when the groom was supposed to be impressing everybody, especially his bride and his bride's family, to run out of wine was a huge cultural faux pas. It's like wearing sandals and socks, right? It's, it's something you don't do, right? Uh, um, it, was a, it was a culturally looked down upon. And so this groom, because he ran out of wine, would have been in a place of shame. I mean, I failed. I messed up. I'm supposed to be impressing people. This is my party and my wedding day, and I ran out of wine. Part of the reason Jesus does this is because it pictures the gospel. Jesus comes in, and he takes away the shame of the groom. He takes away the shame of the groom. And not only takes away the shame of the groom by providing wine, but he actually adds righteousness, if you will, to the groom. Because this wine is not bad wine. This is amazing wine. And so people are not, no longer, we ran out of wine, but they're like, this is the most amazing wine I've ever tasted. Jesus removes the shame of the groom and clothes him with this blessing. And this is what Jesus does for us. Uh, because we tend to gather shame as we live in this life. Because we make mistakes. We, we fail at things. And we hear what other people say about us. We have our own things we say about ourselves. And Jesus comes in, and if you allow him, he will take away all of your shame and take away all of your guilt. Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. Romans 5 says we have been made right in God's sight by faith, that we actually have peace with God. And all of that shame and guilt, if you allow Jesus, he washes it away. And all of us here should be able to, to breathe deeply and just feel no shame and feel no guilt. Because the reality is that we are forgiven, completely forgiven. God is not looking at you with eyes of condemnation, but with eyes of peace and joy because you are his beloved child. And this is the gift of Jesus. And so we continually take our mistakes and we allow Jesus to take them to wash away our shame and to clothe us with righteousness. And this is what Jesus does. He takes away the shame of the groom by making all this wine and really, really good wine. Because that's what it goes on to say. He, uh, then he called, this is the, the, the master of ceremonies. He called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. And so it may be that they did have too much to drink because they ran out. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs. This was his first miracle. Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. And then it says this. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put his faith, faith in them. His first miracle, the first way he reveals his glory is by taking religious jars, defiling them, and making a whole lot of wine for a party. That's Jesus. Now you might ask, uh, why would Jesus defile religious jars to, to bless this party? And it's because Jesus is more concerned about relationship than our madman rules. And sometimes what happens to us Christians, we can get so caught up in man-made rules that we forget about loving people. And Jesus is like, no, we put away man-made rules because our, our goal is to love God and to love people. And then a question that comes out of this is, it says here that the, after the guests have had too much to drink, why did Jesus make more wine? Knowing that some maybe have already been drunk, some have maybe had too much to drink, why did Jesus make more wine when some people already drank too much? Well, have you ever abused a good gift that God has given you? Uh, it doesn't change the good gift. I mean, God gives us good gifts all the time that we abuse. I mean, it doesn't always mean that Jesus doesn't still give them. And so he reveals his glory. This is his first big opening ministry scene. Imagine if we did that here. Like, we're going to open up a new ministry, and we did that by making a bunch of wine. I mean, that would freak people out. But this is what Jesus does. I mean, it's a radical, radical story. That this is his first miracle. He reveals his glory by taking religious jars, defiling them, and making a whole bunch of wine, knowing that some people had already uh, perhaps drunk too much. And so that is the first picture we get of Jesus and alcohol in the Bible. Now, overall, the Bible teaches us that drunkenness is a sin. This is what our text says. Uh, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, or it can ruin your life. That's the idea. Uh, Galatians 5, it's one of the acts of the sinful nature, our old self, the flesh. Uh, the acts of the flesh are obvious and has a whole list, but one of them actually is drunkenness. And one of the reasons is uh, because the mission God has given us is to love God and love people. And being drunk uh, goes against that. I mean, we can look at statistics. I mean, 40% of people have a family member who is an alcoholic. 
uh, alcohol, uh, like this is too much alcohol, is involved in 40% of motor vehicle fatalities, 70% of drownings, 50% of suicides, and up to 40% of violent crimes, including homicide, rape, assault, child, and spousal abuse. And so this is not loving to people. And so uh, this is why the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin, because it leads us to a place where we're no longer being loving uh, when we are harming people. When you scan through the Bible, we see that uh, drunkenness is related to all kinds of things that aren't loving. Uh, incense, uh, incest, uh, <laughs> violence, adultery, mockery, and fighting, poverty, late night and early morning drinking, hallucinations, murder, gluttony, vomiting, staggering, madness, nakedness, in the bad way, because nakedness can be good, uh, laziness, escapism. Uh, again, uh, a lot of times alcohol is used to escape life, to just to get away from the world, and, and that's not the purpose of alcohol, as we'll see. So no matter what your view on alcohol is, that all followers of Christ believe that to constantly get drunk and to drink too much, that that is, that is a sin that doesn't help us with our mission of loving people. Now within Christianity, there are a few different views uh, that followers of Jesus take. And we'll start more on the extreme end, the legalistic view, which says uh, drinking any amount of alcohol is a sin. So they would say if you follow Jesus, even if you take a drop, that's sin. And they would argue that the Bible always says that alcohol is a sin. And to do that, they have to do some really interesting things. And here are some of the things that they will do. They will say, well, wine in the Bible doesn't really mean wine. They'll say it means grape juice. Uh, so whenever you see uh, wine in the Bible, just think grape juice, because really, uh, Jesus would never drink wine. He would only drink grape juice, and, and, and all those people talk about, it's just grape juice, they say, which is really weird, because if it is grape juice, then why are there all these commands about getting drunk on wine? i never heard of anybody getting drunk on grape juice. Um, uh, this, the Acts chapter 2 would be kind of weird, because you know where the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples, and they start acting weird. The people, the crowd makes fun of them and said, they have had too much, to wa uh, too much wine. Did they mean they had too much grape juice? Is that why? Uh, no, I mean, it's just a silly argument. Uh, they'll say that biblical wine was watered down, which is partly true. Uh, the Talmud, which is uh, Jewish hist uh, oral traditions written down, mentions two-part water to one-part uh, uh, wine. Uh, three parts water to one-part wine. Uh, but do you know most of the wines that we drink today are actually watered down? I mean, there's nothing new. Uh, they water down wine to get the alcohol content and the flavor to the right level. Uh, scholar Gary uh, Burge said, Wine was a normal beverage at meals in the Greco-Roman world. Generally, it was so strong that it was diluted with water to improve the taste. But still, it would have more alcohol content than, than our modern-day beers. And so this idea that it was watered down uh, doesn't work. Uh, some will say that they had to drink wine because you could not drink the water, but there's lots of references to people drinking water in the Bible. Uh, some people say, well, the Nazarites, we need to be like the Nazarites. They didn't drink wine. And, uh, and it's true, they didn't. In number six, it says, if a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. And they had lots of different alcohols back then, just as we do today. And must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. And, and they would say, we all should be Nazarites. Uh, but this was only for a special group of people. 
Even Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. And if you really want to do that, then you got to read the rest of the verse, which says they must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins either. So if you want to stop eating grapes and raisins and not cut your hair and all those things, then you can be a Nazarite. But the Bible doesn't call us all to, uh, to be Nazarites. And the big problem with this is that many places in the Bible, if you look at the general theme of alcohol in the scriptures, is that it's actually often seen as a blessing from God. Uh, lots of verses on this. Abundant wine is viewed as a blessing from the Lord. When God talks about blessing his people and blessing uh, community events, it, it's, he blesses them with wine. It talks about in numerous verses. The lack of wine is viewed as judgment from God. And sometimes when God would judge his people, when they would turn away from him, and he would allow other nations to come in, there'd be words that, that there wouldn't have as much wine, or there wouldn't be have abundant wine, that is actually viewed as a judgment to have a lack of wine. Proverbs 3 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barn will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So part of honoring the Lord, part of the blessing from the Lord, just as we honor him with our, with our tithe and God blesses us financially, he's saying that when you honor God that he would bless these people with, with alcohol, with wine. Uh, Psalm 104, he makes, notice that phrase, grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. Now speaking here, that God is, it's again, it's a gift uh, it speaks about. Isaiah, this is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we as believers are, are together with Jesus again, there's talks about this grand feast. This is talking about the new heavens and the new earth where everything is perfect. And guess what's on the table? Wine. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, and the finest wines. It's mentioned twice. And so there's this theme that, that wine is, to be, it was a, is a gift. It was, it's meant originally to be a gift to his people. In fact, it was actually used sometimes in worship to God. Uh, this is talking about these uh, communal events of worship. Uh, this is God commanding. He says, go to the place to uh, the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, because they had other alcohols back then. Or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. So God actually commanding people to go buy alcohol to bring it back home and your household and your family get together and rejoice to God in the present, in his presence. And so we see this theme throughout the scriptures that, that alcohol was originally created good. And it was a good gift. But like many good gifts, uh, we can abuse it and we can use it in the wrong way. I like what Tony Gritz said. Alcohol was created to help commemorate the significant moments of life. God gave us wine to remember not to forget. And sadly, this is often where we're tempted, is to use alcohol to forget life and to, to escape our woes and to get away from the, And God gave us to celebrate life, to add to community and to be a blessing. And, uh, and that sometimes, like many things, we can use it in a wrong way. Uh, Jesus, our example, himself drank wine. 
Uh, the Son of Man, this is Jesus himself speaking, came eating and drinking. He's not talking about drinking water. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and the sinners. Now, he didn't get uh, drunk, but the Pharisees saw him around tax collectors and sinners at parties, eating and drinking alcohol. Uh, Jesus himself says here that uh, he came eating and drinking. The Last Supper, uh, they would use wine. Jesus drank wine at the Last Supper. Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again, which means he had drunk, from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new, which means he's going to drink it again in the kingdom of God. And that either means that the kingdom of God inaugurated after his death and resurrection, so maybe he's drinking it now, or some think this is talking about uh, later at the, the big wedding banquet of the Lamb. But either way, Jesus drank wine. In fact, it was tradition, as scholar uh, Daniel B. Wallace said, this about uh, Passover celebration. By the time of the first century, every adult was obliged to have four glasses of wine during the Passover celebration. Jesus and his disciples did this in the Last Supper. And so Jesus drank wine. And so this idea, this legalistic idea that all Christians should never ever drink wine and it's wrong for any Christian to touch a drop of alcohol is just, it's just not a biblical position to, to hold. Now there's another view which is maybe a little more current, uh, a little more uh, tame I guess you might say. It's kind of the reactionist view and it's this. Uh, drinking alcohol is not sinful but all, now notice all here, they would say every Christian shouldn't drink. It's not sinful, but no Christian should drink. Should avoid drinking out of example, love for others, and a desire not to cause anyone to stumble. And so they would say, because our mission is to love people, that, uh, that no Christian should drink alcohol. Because people, you know, all that violence and car accidents and drunk driving, there's so much horrible things caused by alcohol that no Christian should drink just out of love for people. It's kind of the reactionist view. Um, and, uh, and there's nothing wrong with this view if you take out the all. Because there are some Christians who say, you know, I'm not going to drink because maybe uh, I've struggled with alcohol in the past, or maybe I just need to take a break from it, or I just don't feel right about it myself. I know some of my friends don't drink alcohol. Uh, when I became a Christian at, uh, at 20 years of age, I had spent a lot of times drinking my head off, and so the first seven years of my Christian life, I didn't drink anything. Uh, that's changed now. Uh, I feel that, that I can do it in a, in a God-honoring way. Uh, but this view would say that all Christians shouldn't drink. Just, it's a rule all out of love. And there's a few issues with this. Namely, we've already talked about this. You can't argue for a total prohibition from Scripture. Secondly, there's a need for examples of how to drink responsibly. I mean, sometimes people say, well, I'm not going to drink at all, which is okay. But I, there is a need for people to show up at parties and show that you can just have one or two. And still enjoy, and you don't have to get drunk. This, this idea of a lot of things in life that we are called to be examples. We're called to be the light. Uh, number three, abuses are not erased by elimination. Uh, that there's a lot of good things that God has given us that we don't say, well, because people are abusing it, we should just eliminate it. Martin Luther put it this way. Uh, Do not suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused. Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? 
the sun, the moon, and the stars have been worshipped. Shall we pluck them out of the sky? I mean, the answer to abuse is not disuse when it's a gift from God. And this is a mistake that sometimes Christians use. Like, even when it comes to things like healing or prophecy or tongues, some people say, well, I've seen it abused for, before, so we should never do it again. It's like, no, you don't get rid of it. You just use it the way God meant to use it. You don't disuse it. You use it correctly. A lot of people abuse food. You know, gluttony is a sin in the Bible. Uh, we don't say, no one eat again. No one ever touch food again because, you know, people eat too much in this culture, which we do. But we all say, well, you should just eat properly. Uh, and we could go on and on. We could list a hundred things in this category of good gifts that God has given us that we, we abuse. In fact, we see this in the Bible. Uh, Hosea 2, she, Israel, didn't realize it was I who gave her everything. She has the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I gave her silver and gold, but she gave all my gifts to Baal. So here we say, God saying, I gave you alcohol to celebrate your gatherings and to help you enjoy life, but we have given it over to Baal. We use it to escape life rather than celebrate life. We use it in wrong ways rather than right ways. That doesn't mean it's not a good gift. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, is, this is a command. So whether you eat or drink, and again, when talking about drinks, it's talking about drinking alcohol, water, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. It's not just get rid of it and never do it again. Now, again, you may need to make that choice if this is a struggle. Uh, but this reactionist view where all Christians shouldn't do it uh, is really not a, a biblical position either. In fact, let me give you a little church trivia here. That's a small break before we end. Uh, John Calvin, one of the most famous reformers, uh, theologians in history. Uh, John Calvin's allery, annual salary package included what? Uh, a new suit every month. A B, 250 gallons of wine, or C, six weeks vacation? B, uh, 250 gallons of wine is part of a salary package because he used it for hosting and, and other events, communion, those kinds of things. Uh, when the Puritans, those are the guys who are known for their faith and their dedication, landed on Plymouth Rock, the first permanent building they erected was what? A church, a school, or a brewery? It's actually a brewery. Uh, Arthur Guinness, the man behind the world's most famous stout, A, was a drunk who was regularly found asleep in the streets, or was a devout Christian who gave generously to the poor. He was a devout Christian. Uh, in fact, uh, Guinness was uh, actually, the, the beer was seen as a safe alternative to the hard stuff prevalent throughout Ireland and England at the time. Arthur Guinness founded some of his country's first Sunday schools and gave generously to the poor. The Guinness family also believed in running an ethical business. The company paid employees extremely well, set up services to help their families, and gave to charities. The brewery even famously operated 24-7 during World War II to make sure every English soldier got a bottle of Guinness with their Christmas meal. I mean, a very strong uh, Christian. These are examples of people using it in the way uh, God meant to. Uh, Martin Luther, Luther's wife, should be Luther's wife, uh, Katharina, was well known for what? Her sewing talents, her Sunday school lessons, or her brewing skills. Uh, it was her brewing skills, actually. Uh, she was a master brewer. In one of uh, Martin Luther's letters, he says this, I keep thinking what good wine and beer I have at home, as well as a beautiful wife. You would do well to send me 
over my whole cellar of wine and a bottle of thy beer, says Mountain Martin Luther. And so there are all these examples in history of people uh, using it in the way God intended to celebrate life and to not use it to escape life, but to, to enjoy, enjoy life. And uh, in conclusion, the biblical view really is this. Uh, drinking alcohol is not a sin. Uh, to drink or not to drink is a matter of personal Christian conscience and wisdom. Because some of you may know that it's just never a good idea for maybe me to drink. Because, you know, my, it's my family or I'm susceptible to it or whatever. Or I've struggled in the past and you just say, I'm just not going to do it. But you can't say, well, that's got to be the rule for everybody. Because people have different conscience and different uh, choices in this matter. In fact, there's a whole section in Scripture basically on this point, talking about matters of dispute, things you eat, uh, things you drink. And it says this, Accept other believers who are weak in faith, and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything or drink anything, uh, but another person with a sensitive conscience only eats vegetables or, say, doesn't drink wine or alcohol. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. So whether you choose to drink or not drink, God's accepted you. And therefore you to accept each other. Uh, who are you to condemn someone else's servant? They are responsible to the Lord. So let him judge whether they are right or wrong. And with the Lord's help, they will do what is right and will receive his approval. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And so if you actually are here and like, I totally disagree with that sermon, alcohol is wrong, then, then for you that's actually wrong. And for you to drink is actually a sin. But again, you can't make that rule for everybody because it's a, it's, a, it's a conscience issue. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat or what you drink, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. And so uh, it's talking about here, like if you're going over to someone's house and you know they've struggled with alcohol or you know that they don't agree with drinking alcohol, you don't bring a six pack. Uh, you don't shove it in their face. Uh, we are to love each other, and we love each other in our different views and our different opinions on things, and, and we're sensitive towards each other, and we're gracious towards each other. That's what it's saying. And by the way, this goes both ways, because it says here, do, therefore do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. And some people see alcohol as a good gift from God. And so those need to be careful about calling it evil. On the other hand, those who say, you know, I don't want to drink, i got to be careful both ways. And that's what this text is talking about. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods or all drink are acceptable. But it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. Again, being careful about when you're hanging out with people with different consciences. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine. Again, it's talking about both these things. Or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there is nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Again, if you know someone who has struggled with alcohol or has struggled with in the past and you go over, we were sensitive to wear people out and what they're, what they're wor working through. And then he says, Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. 
But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. And so it's interesting that for some things, two Christians could do the same thing. And for one person it's a sin and one person it's not. I mean, if you actually think it's a sin and you do it, then you're disobeying God in, in your mind and your conscience and, and you're rebelling. But if you think it's okay and you're doing it for the glory of God, then there's no issue there. Uh, and this is with alcohol and these kinds of things. When we use alcohol in the way it was given, not to escape life, but to help with life and to bless gatherings of people and to use it in those kinds of ways, then it's a good gift. We begin to use it to escape life or to get drunk, or, and that's when it moves from good gift to the place where we begin to abuse it. C.S. Lewis, as we close here, said, An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. Marriage or meat or beer or the cinema. Uh, but the moment he starts saying these things are bad in themselves, or looking down his nose at other people who use them, he has taken the wrong turning. And so we, uh, as a community, we learn to love each other through this. And this is where we have discussions and we love each other. And we know we're all different. We have, have different pasts. There's things that maybe I won't do because I've abused them in the past that you might do. And this is where we love each other through this as a community. And so our last verse today is this. Accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is where we bring praise to God when we learn to walk in unity uh, when we're not judging each other or condemning each other, but we're just loving on each other and, and opening God's word and saying, God, what does Jesus say? Because we're trying to, to love Jesus and walk together when it comes to this. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, so many good gifts in life. We thank you for family. We thank you for friends. We thank you for our church family here. God, we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for grace. We thank you for power. And God, we thank you uh, for the gospel. We thank you that you sent Jesus to set us free. That you sent Jesus, God, that we may have life and we may have peace with you. So again, God, I just want to finish on this, this theme of shame, Father. If, there, if you see shame in any of our hearts this morning, uh, God, I pray you'd wash it away in your forgiveness. God, that you would help us to cast our burdens on you. God, that you would set us free and you help us to walk in the freedom that you have called us to be because it's your truth that sets us free we love you we honor you and we give you thanks this morning in jesus name amen amen all right